0: Carol was just laughing at when she looked over at me, is We're All Doing Time. And, of course, this is the title of a book by uh, the teacher Bo Lozoff, and I benefited a lot from his book and some of his newsletters. And lately I've been thinking about um, this notion of doing time And I wanted to speak a little bit more about a topic of time that's not spoken about so frequently, and yet it's one of the most um, central parts of our life, and it's intertwined, intermixed with our happiness, our suffering, the creation of that sense of self, and the cessation or the letting go of that sense of self, all interwoven, inextricably linked to the concept, the experience of time. So I'm going to attempt to speak a little bit about time tonight. Um, So first, it's important, because some Dharma talks, it can very easily start moving in the direction of... uh, just talking about all the things that we do wrong, or all the things that are wrong about things. And I want to first say that time is an incredible friend to us. Beyond, Beside being, uh, perhaps for many of us, a source of difficulty, time is a friend. Time helps us heal, obviously. It's just how a wound takes a certain time to scab and then for the scab to fall off and you don't want to pull the scab off too quickly. Time heals. Time heals our emotional wounds. Uh, It gives us time to mature. It creates the possibility of having perspective, of having the wisdom that comes from reflection. Time. It also allows us, because everything in our life is to some degree bound in time, it allows us to see at the very beginning, if you can find a beginning, that's another, another problem with time, but really anything that we experience that has a birth, and that we all at least imagine that we had a birth, and most of us don't actually know on direct experience, but by being able to think about our birth, we can remember that anything that is born, anything that exists in time, from the moment it's born, it has already written its death. It's it's built into the the nature of birth. The Wiley's Dictionary definition of birth, the leading cause of death. So this is, the, this is the nature of time. And one of the things that I find very beautiful, and I, I want to talk about this at the beginning and also a little bit at the end by sharing a poem. But by thinking about time, by reflecting on the inevitable passing of every birth, of every experience, of every job I may have, of every relationship, it adds a kind of poignancy it adds a kind of uh, heartfulness a, a care that makes me really want to to honor this the preciousness of this and i want to do it well so when i get to the end i can look back when the end of my work or the end of relationship whatever it might be that i can look back and said i did and said i did it well so this is where time is actually adds a certain poignancy to life. Time is also, you could say, it's our enemy. The enemy of the, the sense of somebody. The enemy of each of us. Because it basically steals our experiences. Gives them a certain life, they're gone. Even the most delicious ones. And our most delicious near and dear ones as well. And if we don't know that time is really, uh, I'll venture to say, is a concept, if we don't really know that it's a concept, we can easily become completely hypnotized by it. Living our life only through the lens of time and not being able to taste, not being able to taste what's beyond time, what's outside of time. It blinds us, sometimes, to our true nature. Our true nature, as Zen Master Hakuin says, our true nature that is no nature, beyond coming and going. So I'd like to speak more about this tonight. And start a little bit, just uh, describing a little more about how our world, how the world of experience Is bound in time. So you can think about every experience. You know, I describe birth and death, but if you take any experience that comes, that arises at any door of perception, um, I'm sorry, Sally spoke about the different sense doors. She's been using that word uh, the eye door, the ear door, the nose door, the tongue door, the body door, the mind door. Everyone's been speaking in this way to some degree. But any experience that arises at these different doors of perception, and that basically is everything that happens to every one of us. There's basically only six things that happen all the time. Seeing, hearing, smelling, touching, tasting, feeling, thinking. The rest is a total elaboration a dramatization of these six basic themes. So you can see in the meditation practice, we try to bring our attention, appreciate the amazing capacity of our minds to dramatize what's going on, but to begin to come a little closer to the direct perception of these different sense experiences. Because it's at that careful connection to those different doors that we can see for ourselves, experience for ourselves, indelibly what the nature of each of those experiences is and I know that over the time of this retreat you have quieted down a lot and that your senses are clear. It's one of the purifying elements of practice. Seeing becomes more acute. Hearing, tasting, everything comes alive and it's become so easy in a way, effortless, to experience the nature of a, of a different experience. Not just what it's about, what it reminds you of, but what is the nature of sound. I bet every one of you is an expert at this point. What the Buddha spoke about and described as a real doorway to Nibbana, doorway to Lokutara The happiness of the unconditioned was that every one of these three these six experiences has three qualities or characteristics three common characteristics essentially that they change because they change you can't hold on to them no nothing lasting can be held and that all of them all these experiences happen of themselves, by themselves, without any prompting, not dependent on anybody's will or wish, on nātta, not in control. And the discovery of this nature of change, that which exists in time, the discovery of this process, naturally, without any, actually without any effort at all, just from the clear seeing of this, the nature of that which is bound in time, there is a relinquishing, there's a relaxing of, I used this expression the other night, relaxing of the tight fist of grasping. And what happens? When you relax that tight fist of grasping, space is there, openness, ease, less clinging. And because everything is of those na- the nature of those three common characteristics of change, of ungraspability or unsatisfactoriness and uncontrollability. The Buddha sized up his teaching. Of course, he sized it up all different ways, but one of the most pithy of his sizing up of the teachings was that line that said, nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I or mine, to take ownership of that which changes. Whoever has heard this Nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I or mine. Whoever's heard this has heard the entire teaching. Whoever has practiced this has practiced the whole teaching. Whoever has realized it has realized the whole teaching. So we use in a timely way, we use this careful observation of the flow of experience the flow of experiences that are bound in time, we use these to give ourselves a glimpse, a hint, to be able to begin to sense quite naturally through the relinquishing of our holding, to sense at moments, at various moments, that which is outside of time, the timeless, the deathless. So this is where time is a friend. We use, the, we use the practice which happens in time. And it keeps pointing us to the timeless. And I have a feeling that each of us, in our own way, and I, I know that we have glimpses of this in our life all the time, but we overshoot them. We don't notice them. Where we step right into the to that which has no beginning and no end. And one of the reasons, one of the reasons that we don't recognize these moments, this nature of, it's hard to even use words, is because we're blinded, as I began to mention before, often blinded by our ideas of time. And when they go unexamined, They hypnotize us. And most often, the hypnotic trance of thoughts and ideas of time trick us, in a way, into believing that this wellspring of peace and freedom abides some other place than here, at some other time than here. So I'd like to talk a little bit about how this has happened and is happening on the retreat and how it happens in a regular way in our daily life. So each of us came to the retreat and is living a life, you could say, with a hidden aim. and We've been talking about this hidden aim throughout the time that you've been here. The hidden aim, what is that hidden aim? In everything you do. In your work, in your relationships, in your accumulation of stuff. I, Bo in his, uh in his newsletter, he had a little picture of a gravestone. And on the top it said, RIP. And on the gravestone it said, Melvin Schmuck, who worked 40 years at a job he hated, so he could buy lots of stuff. (laughs) So, Melvin Schmuck was no more Schmuck than the rest of
1: us.
0: (laughs) He had a hidden aim. There is that belief that each of us has. There is an aim that that once we get to the end of our rainbow, once we've actually gotten 40 years' worth of stuff, once we have amassed the fortune or gotten the perfect relationship or house or whatever it is that, that or accomplishment, that once we get to that end of the rainbow, what will happen? Ah, relief. Happiness. And, of course, the Buddha said that the highest happiness is peace. And, you know, even, I never think about, when I started to think about this, I never thought about having a big smile on my face. It would be more that sense of having arrived when I finally did it all. It seems quite natural to, to, aim, for, to aim for happiness. But there's a little hypnotic induction involved here. In every one of those plans, in every one of those goals, there is a belief, just subtly, that that sense of relief won't happen until you've checked off your list. So already, we're veiled by the concept of time, already Our present moment is colored with the view that it's not quite there yet. And that happiness is sometimes in the future. And we wonder every day, I think I can speak for almost all of us, we wonder why we're anxious. Why are we anxious? I started to notice that I was anxious because I was burdening my future burdening my thoughts of the future with the idea that they had to make, that the future had to make me happy. And what if it didn't? What if it doesn't? That's scary. And when I finally saw this kind of toppling forward, this kind of veiled toppling into the imagined future, I, asked, I had to ask myself a question. Is there truly, on, as I sit here right now, is there really anything missing when I'm not waiting for the future? I began to realize, in practice, inquiry, that this peace and relief, this happiness of peace, is my very nature, our very nature. And that we really don't need to lift out of this instant to have that sense of relief. And this is why the teachings of liberation keep pointing us again and again and again, back to this fundamental point, this moment, so that we can have relief, have that sense of home now, and then going about, then go about doing our lives without the burden, the burden of time that they have to make us happy. And for me, this was a, it was a kind of revelation. I didn't even realize how much I was leaning and waiting, postponing my happiness until some future date. Thich Nhat Hanh speaks very beautifully and humorously about this in his poem called Froglessness, which probably most of you have heard, but I'll read it anyway. The first fruition of the practice is the attainment of froglessness, When a frog is put on the center of a plate, she will jump out of the plate after just a few seconds. If you put the frog back again on the center of the plate, she will again jump out. You have so many plans. There's something you want to become. Therefore, you always want to take a leap, to make a leap, a leap forward. It's difficult to keep the frog still on the center of the plate. You and I both have Buddha nature in us. This is encouraging, but you and I both have frog nature in us. That's why the first attainment of the practice, froglessness is its name. (laughs) We can do our practice in this kind of frog nature. You can feel yourself leaning, waiting for that great experience to happen. Or I'm sure that you are all experts at this point on waiting for the bell to ring. Anybody notice that? <laughs> now, it's interesting. It's a, such a perfect example. Actually, I think James was the first one that kind of pointed me in this direction many, many years ago. But it's very interesting, that veil of waiting. I can go along fine. My body's a little uncomfortable. And because of a little bit of discomfort, there's this tendency for, to rise in the mind the desire for the bell to ring, right? So at that moment, the bell, future moment obviously, becomes the secret to happiness. <laughs> and what happens to my present experience? No way I can be happy until that bell rings. And so, okay. You're waiting, waiting. And what happens as you wait? What happens as you postpone your happiness? You wait and wait and wait and wait and wait. And your body, is you start to explode. You get really restless. You get really anxious. Because you've tethered your well-being to some future date. OK. Then what? Because what really keeps us bound in this cycle of time is the bell rings. And of course, ah! Oh, I feel great now. (laughs) It really was the secret to my
1: happiness.
0: (laughs) But as James transmitted to me many, many years ago, what was it that really made me happy? Was it the bell? I don't think so. What really made me happy, what gave me that sense of relief, was the cessation of waiting the cessation of wanting. The cessation, the falling away of that postponement of my happiness to some future date. And the way that I I worked with this, and you can do it in your own way, is I started to pay attention to that feeling of waiting. And one of the powerful things about working with the hindrances so directly, when you actually feel the quality of waiting in your mind, And we can do this in our daily life, too, because there's such a tendency to be obsessed with what's next. I'll I'll digress a little bit. Many of you know that I I was lucky enough to be able to buy a home. It was a major fixer-upper about almost five years ago. And immediately upon getting my home, I embarked in home improvement. And home improvement was this process, not unlike self-improvement.
1: <laughs>
0: and I was going to you know, set about working on my place. And I realized at a certain point that I was anxi- getting more and more anxious. I was waiting for the project to end, waiting for the home improvement to end. And it dawned on me that home improvement, like self-improvement, is endless. And it helped, me, it helped burst that trance of waiting, that trance of time, and helped me arrive again where I am, relieved, not having it be dependent on whether the project gets finished. And that, I think, is most important in terms of self improvement, in terms of the unfolding of the Dharma in your life. Don't wait to be happy. Sri Nisargadatta puts it this way. Nothing can make you happier than you are. All <laughs> search for happiness, and you, I think you know what I mean by that now in the way that I was talking. All search for happiness is misery and leads to more misery. The only happiness worth the name is the natural happiness of conscious beings. It's reminding me, as I'm saying this word being, one of my favorite passages from uh, Walt Whitman, where he says, I'm grateful for what I am and have. My thanksgiving is perpetual. It's strange how contented one can be with nothing definite, only a sense of existence. Oh, how I laugh at my vague, indefinite riches. No run on my bank can drain it, for my wealth is not possession, but enjoyment, enjoyment of being. So one of the values of attending so carefully to the waiting mind, the wanting mind, the aversive mind, and I know that... That you are all experts on the aversive mind. I got a, we love these anonymous notes, but I got a note uh, yesterday saying, "Would you please come on time to the late night sitting?" <laughs> now, that's aversion. There's a, a, there's a, of course it's aversion. There's a, a form of waiting there, tethering their well-being to whether I show up on time. Not a very reliable refuge, is it? <laughs> Since not only did I come in late last night, but all of us came in late. <laughs> this is the aversive mind. And the beauty of attending to the nature of aversion, the nature of waiting or wanting, to feel the nature in your body, as in that direct connection, you, in that moment, you cut through the pattern of ideas and memories that make all that drama seem so real, And see that in the moment, that desire, that waiting, and this is the potential of paying attention to it, that waiting is a changing condition. It's a changing state of mind. And you can begin to see how selfless it is, how it's not self, it just happens. If you follow it, however, if you get entranced by its story of time, of waiting, This is what Jigpa Lingpa or some Tibetan master says, this is why we end up, (laughs) 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 I've never been able to pronounce his name, (laughs) (laughs) This, this is why we wander endlessly, endlessly astray in samsara's vicious cycle, entranced by time and trying to figure out people's
1: names.
0: (laughs) I spoke about this on a retreat many years ago. Uh, In in fact, it's all the way back in, uh, I think, almost 10 years ago at Yucca Valley. And I was talking a little bit about waiting, and somebody wrote me this note, and Some of you have probably heard this as well, but I I thought it was just so indicative of the way that we get entranced by the waiting mind, by by the mind that's lost in time. Howie, what you were saying about waiting got me thinking. My parents usually spend a fair part of the morning awaiting the arrival of lunch. Often while eating lunch, they'll discuss what where to have supper later on. All afternoon they wait for supper time. Does that sound familiar? During the meal, plans will be made about where, when, what to have for breakfast the next day, or would they do, prefer to do brunch? They are eating up their lives,
1: <laughs>
0: literally and figuratively. I'm fed up with this
1: <laughs>
0: with this way of living or not living, I should say. When I eat, I want to do more than fill my mouth and stomach. A hole the hole inside that food can never fill anyway. I want to nourish myself, body and spirit and heart, like it is here. And I want to stop waiting. Now. I tried it out today, walking in the desert, and it worked wonderfully for maybe an hour. (laughs) It totally changed the texture of my walk. I didn't want to come back. I felt almost like I dropped acid on the brink of hallucinating, kind of. Well maybe I'm just not drinking enough H2O. (laughs) Well thanks for bringing up the subject of waiting. It's real important for me, as you can see. Certain states of mind really reinforce this, this kind of veil of time, of waiting, of future, of past. And one that I find very much that I have to pay a special ten- attention to is the mental state of rushing. Because rushing gives the illusion that you're really going somewhere. And it also gives this illusion that your life is meaningful in some way. And it's it's amazing how how much our identities can be tethered to this rushing feeling and busyness. You know, people wear this busyness like a like a badge. Actually somewhere in here. This is about busyness. This is called sweet nothing. How have you been busy? How's work? busy. How is your week? Good. Busy. You name the question, busy's the answer. Yes, yes, I know we're all terribly busy doing terribly important things, but I think more often than not, busy is simply the most acceptable knee-jerk response. I mean, we're all colored by this mental state. Certainly, there are more interesting, more original, and more accurate ways to answer the question, how are you? I'm hungry for a burrito. I'm envious of my best friend. I'm frustrated by everything that's broken in my house. I'm itchy. Yet busy stands alone as the easiest way of of summarizing all that you do and all that you are. I'm busy is the short way of saying, implying, my time is filled. My phone does not stop ringing. And you, therefore, should think well of me. (laughs) Have people always been this busy? Did cavemen think they were busy? (laughs) This week is crazy. I've got about 10 caves to draw on. Can I I meet you by the fire next week? I have a hunch that there is a direct correlation between the advent of coffee bars and the increase of busyness. Look at us. We're all pros now at hailing cabs, making Xeroxes, carpooling, performing surgery with a to-go cup in hand. We're skittering about like hyperactive gerbils, High not just on caffeine, but on caffeine's luscious byproduct, productivity. Ah, the joy of doing, accomplishing, crossing off. Well, I'm starting to think that, like our youth. Oh, sorry, I skipped. As our kid as kids, our stock answer to most every question, what did you do at school today? What's new? Was nothing. <laughs> In our country's history there have been exactly 7 kids who responded with a statement other than nothing. <laughs> then somewhere along the way to adulthood we each took a 180 degree turn. We cashed in our nothing for busy. I'm starting to think that like youth the word nothing is wasted on the young. Maybe we should try reintroducing ourselves, reintroducing it in our grown-up <laughs> vernacular. Nothing. I say it a few times and I can feel myself becoming more quiet, decaffeinated, Zenish, nothing. Now I'm picturing emptiness, a white blanket, a couple of ducks gliding on a still pond. Nothing, nothing, nothing. How did we get so far from it? Rushing, busyness, hoping, hope, which is one of those words that if, it's really hard to, to speak about it without giving a whole Dharma talk of it, but the hope, hope can be a confidence in the future, faith that can have a quality of relaxation, but hope can also have this kind of entrancing, waiting, postponing quality that says, that colors this present moment and makes it appear that it's not enough. Planning, expecting, most of you have in your interviews, in one form or another, have talked about the coloring of the mind, of the expecting mind, what that does to your present experience. It's one thing to have pain in the knees, but to expect it to go away or not to be there. It's one thing to have lots of thoughts in your mind, but it makes it that much more painful when you expect that it shouldn't be there, or you're waiting for it to end. So it's very seldom about what's actually happening, but it's about how we're thinking about, it or how we're viewing our ideas about what should be happening, or what we hope would happen. One of the ways that uh, the thoughts of time really, um, I think, tortures us a lot is this tendency to, to think in the present moment that we can predict how we're going to feel at some future date. And a lot of our thoughts, I, I know I can speak for myself, a lot of my Especially places that I've been afraid has never been about what's actually happening in the moment, but it's what I will Imagine will happen at some future time Just one simple example of that that you can sense maybe even on retreat is We talk a lot about seeing through the illusion of the of self Releasing the identification with experience, seeing through um, ego, the ego. And often when people hear this kind of teaching, I've had people, I've had rooms get angry when I start mentioning it, often people will feel afraid. And it's not so much about what's happening on the spot, about, but it's about imagining what it's going to be like when I have to let go of my idea of myself. And yet, And it colors my experience, and then it it makes me a little panicky on the spot. And that's really the veil of the imagination of time. But the funny thing is, at least I've noticed in my own life, that I'm constantly giving up that sense of self. That when we're busy doing everything in our lives, we're not busy thinking about ourselves. We immerse ourselves. And when we're most functional and most happy, we're not thinking about somebody. We're not saying, I'm doing this and I'm doing that. We're just living, just expressing, functioning. And every night, we give up self so easily to go to sleep. We give up all of our identities. And I think that's one of the reasons I've thought about this for years, one of the reasons we love to go to sleep so much. So we can let go of ourselves. No problem when we do that. But somehow the idea of it in waking consciousness, fear. Nothing to be afraid of. We're doing it all the time. Just right now, close your eyes for a moment. Or don't even close your eyes. Just rest your attention in this moment before your your next thought and after your last one. Just don't give rise for one moment. to any memory or any hope, any idea about yourself? What's experienced directly, immediately, when you don't look back and you don't look forward? What happens in this quiet? Who vanishes? What vanishes? little exercise I, I sometimes like to to do besides just this brief sensing of of your direct experience beyond your ideas is is just take one of those cherished ideas of yourself one of those ideas that you think really describes you you know and every one of us has some variation on a theme of i'm not enough i'm not okay the way i am and of course someday i will be we'll just experiment with just this thought i'm not okay the way i am i am not okay really kind of groove on that thought for a moment i'm not okay the way i am it's amazing how much that goes in our mi- on in our minds in various forms i'm not enough we'll we'll use the one i am not enough does that ring familiar to anyone i don't want it to just be some conceptual thing. Okay, the thought, I am not enough. Let's just hold on to that for a moment. And let's just slowly dismantle this thought. So I am not enough. Let's just remove the the word enough off the end for the fun of it. I am not. That feels a little better than I'm not enough, doesn't it? Okay, now let's just remove the the not. I am not. Let's remove not. I am. That feels better already. I am. Let's just really groove on I am. I am. Okay, let's just for a moment remove the am. And let's just hang with I. I. Just really hold tightly to that eye, I Now just for a moment, remove the eye, just sense. Now, can that sense that you experience as we do this, can that immediate experience be captured in those normal thoughts of yourself? Can your direct experience prior to or after thoughts be, can that be described? Can your nature beyond thoughts be captured in those little sentences, those little stories? This is more direct evidence than that virtual world that we mostly live in. Whatever the life of that instant is, it's not so easy to reduce to these thoughts that are bound in time. Henry Audubon put it this way. If there's a difference between the bird and what the field guidebook says, believe the bird. We usually believe the field guidebook about ourselves and miss the essence, the direct perception of the moment. But there's a secret in each moment of of mindfulness, each moment of connecting with that life of experience. There's a secret there. There's a, a revelation possible. There's a moment that we step out of time. This is what uh, Nisargadatta says, When the mind is momentarily free of its preoccupations, it becomes quiet. If you do not disturb this quiet and stay in it, you will find that it's permeated with a light and a love you have never known, yet you recognize it at once as your own nature. Once you've passed through this experience, you'll never be the same person again. The unruly mind may break its peace and obliterate its vision, but it's bound to return, provided the effort is sustained until until the day when all bonds are broken, delusions and attachments end, and life becomes supremely concentrated in the present. Ramakrishna in tasting this whatever outside of time. Ramakrishna was this ecstatic saint in India. And he would just go into a kind of reverie and people would sit around the garden with him. And then all of a sudden he would just open his eyes and just start singing these ecstatic songs of realization. This one he says, I bow to you timeless cause of time. I bow to you, pure consciousness that displays all worlds. I bow to you, reality without attributes, my sole refuge, only adorable one, one who purifies, one who protects. I bow only to you, the absolutely unmanifest, Inconceivable, indescribable, I bow only to you, light of meditation, non-dual awareness. To you alone do I bow. And Rumi, in recognizing our nature beyond our thoughts and veils of time, of self, he says, Why do you stay in prison when the door is so wide open? Move outside the tangle of fear thinking. Live in silence. Flow down and down in always widening rings of being. So, we taste, can taste our nature beyond the ideas of time and the ideas of self. But that's not where we live most of the time. We live in our, in our identities. And our identities, our whole sense of identity, the sense of self is bound in time. That's why we're a little nervous because time as we know is always running out and our identities and ideas of ourselves are bound to our bodies and our bodies as we know are getting old the, the last retreat that I, I think the, the second month of the March retreat or the two month retreat I I helped lead uh, this year and, in looking around the room, it was so noticeable that, you know, I would do this kind of sweep of my eye, and it was so noticeable that the sangha, because I'd been, I started leading retreats about 15 years ago, I'd, I'd sweep the room, and the room had grayed. <laughs> and of course, a few days later, I had mentioned this, a few days later, somebody left me a note on the bulletin board, and with only a few words, and I, didn't, I wasn't certain that it was related, but she said, uh, only my hairdresser knows for sure. <clears throat> but our identities get so tethered to our bodies. And our bodies are bound in time. They have a beginning and they have an end. And because we get hypnotized by that identity, we get afraid of, their, of our aging because it's, it literally threats who threatens who we think we are. And people go to enormous lengths to try to keep these bodies young and beautiful. And uh, one of the most popular fads these days uh, is the um, use of the uh, human growth hormone. Have you been reading about this? This is. I'll just give you a little piece of this. On a sunny morning recently, an elegantly dressed woman strolled down Fifth Avenue, turned into East 72nd Street and strode past million-dollar limestone maisonettes into the office of Dr. Adrian Denise. The patient, a New York fashion publicity agent from the higher rungs of the society there, asked not to be named but revealed that she visits this clinic to receive her weekly dose of the 1990s version of youth elixir, human growth hormone. Dr. Denise, a trim blonde with skin that's smooth but oddly hard to the touch, is (laughs) is not your average physician. A series of injections of human growth hormone at her clinic, she maintains, gives patients glowing skin, increased muscle mass, elevated sex drive, a lighter mood, sharper mental acuity, and the whiz-bang metabolism of an (laughs) 18-year-old." Here's a little testimonial. Uh, "'We're not about growing old gracefully,' said Ronald Klatz, president of some society. "'We're about never growing old.'" (laughs) Gary Simeno, a private investor in Manhattan who's been taking human growth hormone for one year, said, my health and my quality of life are major issues for me. Speaking by cellular phone during a workout at the Reebok Sports Club on the (laughs) upper west side, he said, I used to be a hedonistic yuppie of the 80s who was only concerned with his Mercedes Benz. Now I'm a hedonistic yuppie of the 90s who's only concerned about his health and well-being and who will do anything for it. So we really get carried away with this. I recently, when I was uh, traveling, came across a. I guess it's a. Oh, it's in the Marin Independent Journal.
1: It's.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, it's an. It's a giant advertisement for the human growth hormone, and it. One of the, quotes at the very top of it says, "Growing old is not inevitable." So well, you can see this is a bit of a problem in our, having our identities tethered to something that is bound in time. Our story of, of you could say, our story of dissatisfaction is bound uh, in time as it, as it relates to thoughts. Because our whole identity, as you could see just in a moment, is, uh, is based on ideas about ourselves. And our thoughts and our ideas about ourselves are always changing, and they're easily threatened. There's a kind of inherent insecurity, and and this shows up a lot in practice, um, this sense of having your sense of identity be so easily shaken because it's tethered to ideas. Ideas are bound in time. I was starting to think about, but I've told this story so many times, that I hesitate. But the the best example for me of seeing the the insecurity of this of the story of me, you know, the story of me who wants to come out on top each time. That sounds funny. Uh, is when I was practicing with um, Upandita Sayadaw, who we've mentioned on this retreat, and and he would see. People's ideas of themselves—you know—literally, we carry it around like a, uh, like a, a certain posture that we carry. And I guess he saw me as a certain kind of character type, who was very, you know, taken with myself in some way. And so at first, he buttered me up and just fed that idea of myself as a really special person. (laughs) Once he had me all loosened up, then when I started going in for interviews, I think others had the same experience. He would do a few different things. He would either pick up a book and start reading, or every word out of my mouth, as I was trying to report in the most efficient, most meticulous way. He go, ugh. You know, he'd make a face or he'd say, not good yogi or not right. (laughs) Needless to say, the I story, my view of myself, it did not like that. And and I, the, the way the body forms around the views of myself, got very contracted, very angry. And then the proof was that in the next days, after my interviews, I would just be planning my revenge and how, how he wouldn't talk to me that way. And it was really a, a great teaching to see how easily i could be thrown off and of course he would work a person until they did, he didn't bother them anymore and it didn't work so well with me and i <laughs> it's true it didn't work for you i was <clears throat> looking down here in this cartoon at the guy who's standing at the standing at a bar Talking to the bartender, and he says, Hey pal, do you have any idea who I think I am?
1: <laughs>
0: but our identities, you know, they get bound in time. And, you know, of course, it depend on us getting better. If we're, if we're unsecure, well, maybe something I can do can make me more secure. But generally, all the teachings that we're given in our culture to make us better keep us bound in time. This is a really quirky ad that, uh, from the Rosicrucian order that's just a kind of example of the things that slip into our cultural view and, and color our thoughts and color our views of ourselves. This is a, a woman who's eating an apple, looking very tranquil. She says, I see things as they can be, not as they are. <laughs> if you don't try, you won't change. I believe in the end, the person with the most highly developed spiritual values wins. <laughs> this is like quicksand, tethering our identities to ideas of time. This is why there's such a powerful sense of coming home, of rest of healing to the body and mind when we just rest our attention evenly in moment-to-moment experience. Because in those moments of careful attention, we're not constructing a big story. We're putting down, we're relinquishing that burden of having to prop ourselves up and defend and protect and enlighten even. We're just with things as they are. Because we get terribly exhausted by this attempt to try to secure the insecure exhausted and with our neediness exhausted with our um, hopes expectations need to be met held to to recognize our needs to fulfill all our needs everything it, it becomes really exhausting and it 's all the the Um, occupation of thoughts of time, always with the future as the goal. The truth is There is only a present. The future, the past, do not exist. As Alan Watts says, this is one of the things you recognize when you stop thinking for a moment, is that there is only a now, only an eternal now. And the whole purpose of life is to, as he says, to Dig the present, to groove with the eternal now, and to see that the point of life is always arrived at at the moment. So we may think about time, we may have a whole conception of time, but actually, everything in our experience, even birth and death, is simply part of an, an expression, a fountain of present, a fountain of ever flowing present. We never really leave the present. We only imagine that we do. And our practice can continually point us to this immediate point outside of time. And in fact, it does. And we can begin to see that with whatever is arising, every little experience, even the most unpleasant experiences, become our gong, become our doorway. <laughs> to this immediacy. its I'm amazed at how much I can be living in that virtual world of time. Somehow throwing the future somewhere in front of me in my mind and then worrying about it a lot, or sometimes getting excited, and throwing the past somewhere behind me and then you know, replaying memories, regrets, remorse, or you know, pleasant memories. That's part of the karma. of Good karma is having pleasant memories. But it's so easy to believe that it's actually there, back there. You know, there's other cultures in the world where it's exactly the opposite, where they put the past in front of you because you can see it. The future's behind some indigenous cultures. But it's just a habit, a trick of our mind to somehow throw the future somewhere ahead and the past somewhere behind. They don't really even exist. They're dreams. They're virtual. There is only this present moment. Rumi says, Lovers think they're looking for each other, but there's only one search. Wandering this world is wandering that both inside one transparent sky. In here, there's no dogma, no heresy. The miracle of Jesus is himself, not what he said or did about the future. Forget the future. I'd worship someone who could do that. A few more minutes. Our thoughts of time, because even if it doesn't exist, they color our perception every day, all day, in one form or another. They're perceptions and they're relative perceptions. You know, even as the retreat is kind of moving toward that uh, that ending phase. People have come into interviews, and one person will say, only two more days left. That thought of time. Another person will say, two whole days. (laughs) Same amount of time, but the perception is very different. So again, this is an invitation to see the way that your thoughts of time are coloring your experience here. Because we're inundated with, with our different changing relationships to time. One of the, the metaphors that's often used in our minds is the time is money metaphor. You know, I don't have enough time. I have too much time. I'm not using my time well. These kinds of things go through our minds and we just follow them. We kind of follow them along and, feel, and wonder how we feel. Think for a moment. I don't have enough time. How do you feel in your body when you hear that? I have too much time. Boredom. The interesting thing for me is to trace that back. I, I don't have enough time. Don't have enough time, we'll remove that. I don't. I. But if I follow that on the other end, I start feeling really anxious. So it's to begin to pay attention to how thoughts of past and future color our attention. Albert Einstein says, when a man sits with a pretty girl for an hour, it seems like a minute, but let him sit on a hot stove for a minute, and it's longer than any hour. (laughs) That's relativity. (laughs) And last but not least, uh, Henry, Henry Van Dyke, who says, time is too slow for those who wait, too slow for those who fear, too long for those who grieve, too short for those who rejoice, but for those who love, time is eternity. These present moments are all we have. This is really where time is, where the real time is. Gadatta says, reality is what makes the present so vital, so different from past and future, which are, real, are merely mental. So it's really about how we take care of these only moments that we have. So I'd like to leave you with a poem called, How Do You Live Your Dash? I read of a man who stood to speak at the funeral of a friend. He referred to the dates on her tombstone from the beginning to the end. He noted that first came her date of birth and spoke the following date with tears. But he said that what mattered most of all was the dash between those years, 1934 to 1998. For that dash represents all the time that she spent alive on earth, And now only those who loved her know what that little line is worth. For it matters not how much we own, the cars, the house, the cash. What matters is how we live and love, and how we spend our dash. (laughs) So we think about this long and hard. Are there things you'd like to change? For you never know how much time is left that can still be rearranged. If we could just slow down enough to consider what's true and real and always try to understand the way other people feel and be less quick to anger and show appreciation more and love the people in our lives like we've never loved before. If we treat each other with respect and more often wear a smile, remember that this special dash might only last a little while. So when your eulogy is being read, with your life's actions to rehash, would you be proud to, proud of the things they say about how you spent your dash? So let's have a few moments of quiet. Thank you for your long, enduring attention. And uh, there's 30 minutes now for walking. 30 minutes of dash. Oh, if, if the bell ringer could ring the bell about five minutes later, thank you.